striving against sin, resting in grace. The struggle is real. This idea of fighting against the sense of condemnation that we might feel, even maybe regularly feel, uh, because we still struggle against the flesh. Um, Paul spoke to this. We've referenced this many times in Romans 7, where Paul goes on and, uh, and very painfully, you can hear it in his writing, uh, and you can hear it in the cry of victory at the end of it, where Paul goes on to describe how there is this constant battle between his flesh and his spirit, his desire to do what is right and to know it's right, to recognize God's law and all of its glorious uh, truth and justness and rightness, but yet his own fallen inability to live up to it. And this creates a massive struggle for him, one that finally gets him to cry out at the, toward the end there in, in chapter 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Again, the struggle is real, but the victory is there because he goes on to say, I thank God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. There is victory in Christ, right? Now, on a practical level, we still deal with sin. We still deal with the giving in to temptation. The flesh remains strong. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, to borrow from the expression, the flesh is strong with this one. But, you know, the, the truth is, is that we do. We battle. We fight. We try to... to, to, to avert ourselves from falling down the path of, 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 of giving in to temptations in that. And if we say that we don't, we're not really uh, being honest about that. And if we're not going to be honest about it, we're probably not going to seek um, really a solution for it. We're not going to seek to find rest in Christ and His grace if we think that, A, we don't really struggle with sin and temptation in that, or if we feel like we've got it handled ourselves. Uh, you know, in his first letter, which is where we're going to be today, first letter of John, chapter 2, uh, John has been talking about this as well. The idea that, of course, we still deal with sin. Of course, we still struggle with it. Um, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his truth is not in us, is how uh, chapter 1 ended. Well, chapter 2 continues on that thought for these first few verses and kind of brings us, uh, maybe not with the same impassioned kind of plea that or uh, a cry of thanksgiving that we see in, in Paul's writing in chapter 8, verse 1. But in similar sense, uh, in John's own way of saying things, there is a uh, no less important of an understanding of our place in Christ in spite of the struggle. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, John says, my little children, now that, that alone uh, deserves just a moment for sure. Um, God help us to never kick a a brother or sister when they're down, when they've failed, when they've fallen. Um, It's easy for us in the flesh, which is another example of our flesh at at work, uh, when we see someone fail and we look at them and we say, you know, if they only would have done this, if they only would have done that, I'm thankful I don't struggle with that or something like that and just, you know, kind of create this sort of air of arrogance and that kind of thing, pride, really. Um, John here in talking about sin, how it's a reality, a struggle in the life of the believer. He says, my little children, my young ones. Um, but that sort of fatherly sense of wanting to make sure not to crush them under the understanding of this, but really to lead them to where they need to be in truly understanding where they stand 
in light of the gospel and the power of Christ and the victory over sin that we experience and how we can stand in security. Uh, you know, John in the same letter would go on to say at one point that uh, you know, we write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so here in chapter 2, as we begin, in the midst of a discussion about the reality of sin, notice what John does. Again, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It's another, uh, we're starting to see uh, these periodic mentions of why John and, uh, and those who are with him are writing this. Uh, we write these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And so, we're writing these things to you that you, so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, um, all believers are capable, I don't want to say of falling into sin, because truth be told, we, we don't often fall into sin, we often walk right into it, and uh, and, and, you know, um, sometimes even embrace it. It ought not be so, but it is. Um, and so John is writing these things to encourage believers not to go down that road, not to give in to the temptation, not to uh, succumb to sin, to recognize that it is possible to walk in victory over that. Now, I know that's hard. It's, it's difficult for us, right? Because there's something in our lives that just seems to have a hold on us that we can't get past. Maybe it's um, anger. Maybe it's drinking. Maybe it's uh, lust. Maybe it's whatever it might be that just is the thing that no matter how hard you pray, no matter how you try to take steps not to, not to, you know, uh, to lose your top with your kids or whatever it might be, you just find yourself always doing it. And you feel horrible about it, and you feel devastated over it, and maybe you've caused actual harm because of it, and that kind of thing. Well, John is writing these things to encourage us away from being in the continual practice of those kinds of things, even to the point of just being done with it, being past it, having victory over it. But he also says that if anyone does sin, and I think that this this sort of caveat here is not just a caveat. It's not just, but, but if you do, it's not just that. I think it is that, but it's not just that. If you do stumble, if you do fall, if you do cave, the answer to that is also the platform upon which we stand for victory. Not platform, that sounds like we won a medal or something like that, but the the foundation that we stand upon that allows us to experience victory in our struggles. He says, if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate with the Father. An advocate means someone who stands in your stead, someone who stands before you, someone who gets between you and the judge and makes the case for you. Uh, Somebody who, uh, uh, in some circumstances, would sort of stand there to protect you from the judgment that might be coming. And in a very real sense, that's what Jesus did at the cross, uh, his, his death for our sin on the cross paid for our sins, past, present, future. Uh, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world, not holding their sins against them, right? And so in our sinful condition, at that point, Jesus was dying and died for our sins and finished the work. 
And now the call just remains. Now be reconciled to him, you know? Well, that advocate before the Father, um, maybe it, it helps to try and clear up a misconception that sometimes really paints the view of, of what we think of God. Now, when we see a sentence like this, we might think that Jesus is standing here just pushing against the Father, saying, okay, no, don't don't hurt him, Father. You know, don't judge him. I've already taken it. And he's, you know, protecting us from a, from a, uh, a wrath-angry, you know, God who's just trying to pound us and all this kind of a thing. On the one hand, I don't want to diminish the fact that God is a righteous judge. Um, he's absolutely right in judging our sin. I mean, there's, it's, it's not, he's not unrighteous or unloving by doing so. We sinned. We violated his law. We slapped him in the face and said, I'm going to do what I want to do. He is absolutely within rights to, not just for in the sense of like, you know, how dare you, but we violated what is good and right and holy and just. And so it makes sense that there's a penalty for that. And God is the perfect completely righteous judge in that regard, in all regards, but no less in this one. And when Jesus stands before us, he's not holding back a vengeful, angry God who's just trying to kill us or something like that. And thank God Jesus is there or God would just come and get us and hunt us down or something. No, it just simply means that when God the Father looks at us, sinners, rebels, violators, he now sees us through the finished work of his Son, and that makes the case for us. There's no longer judgment because he's paid for it. So therefore, if you're in Christ, old things have passed away. All things become new. That's true of your standing in judgment, but it also becomes true of you as a person. You become transformed. You become something and someone that is new in Christ. And so the idea of an advocate here. We need to see it in its proper place and understand it, that that judge, that justice from the hand of the judge would be absolutely just in coming upon us, if not for Christ, having paid it. And so therefore, it no longer is coming upon us. And so on one, at one point, we recognize, okay, since that judgment isn't coming anymore, that's a great motivator to not want to live in that way anymore. Because gratitude tends to cause us to not want to hurt people that have done good for us. And so to recognize that we are clean and forgiven, we stand righteous uh, before the eyes of the Father now because of what Christ did on our behalf, we no longer are seen as the rebels and the violators and the sinners uh, steeped in rebellion that we once were. But now we're seen as spotless and white. We're seen as clean and pure. Um. Not only that, um, but he goes on to say that uh, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. So he stands as the advocate before us because he is the righteous one. And as the righteous one, he is the propitiation or the righteous satisfaction of the penalty that was deserved, having been totally satisfied. He stands as the one who advocates for us because he's the one who ultimately wiped our slate clean. Um, he, in his death, fully satisfied any judgment and punishment that we deserved. Now, it's worth taking some time to think about just how absolutely wonderful that truth is. I mean, literally, it is full of wonder to think about how lost and how completely rebellious we were um, and now it's wiped clean. 
you know, it almost grates against human nature. Not almost, it totally grates against human nature because we want to feel like we did something to make that right. Hey, I screwed this thing up. I'm going to fix it somehow. Uh, was it Einstein who said, you know, we can't solve the problem by using the same thinking that got us into it? Um, you know, well, we're certainly the ones who got the problem in this particular case. There might be some instances where you can sort of fix the problem you created. This is not one of them. Uh, you and I were born in sin, completely just that's what we are. We couldn't get out of that. It's not just what we did, it's what we are. And so therefore, when Jesus comes, the righteous one, it's not he's not righteous because of what he does, he's righteous because of who he is. He now substitutes himself in our place, taking on the punishment that we deserve, and he satisfies fully that righteous judgment that God was completely within rights to bring down upon us. And now we're free. And now we're cleansed. So if anyone does sin, recognize that that sin was paid for by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Completely done. There's nothing left. There's nothing left to do. Now I'll go a step further. And this, of course, becomes a point of some controversy within the body of Christ as far as um, who falls under that. Um, you know, when John chapter 2, verse 2 says, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins. In other words, ours, you know, who he's writing to, but believers. Um, but not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Um, that's an enormous statement, isn't it? Now, there's a particular view that would say, well, when he says for the whole world, what he really means is just the whole world of the elect and this kind of a thing. And I'm not diminishing the theology behind that because, um, well, if you've ever heard me talk about that, the idea of God's sovereign election and man's personal responsibility, um, I believe in both fully. I, I, don't, I don't diminish either one of those two. Um, uh, I take the, uh, was it Moody, I think, who said, you know, uh, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's free will? It was either Moody or Spurgeon, but how do you, it might have been Spurgeon, actually. How do you uh, reconcile, you know, God's ele you know, sovereign election and man's personal responsibility and, or free will? Or, I forget how it was put exactly, but he said, well, I, you know, I don't. I mean, I've never tried to reconcile friends, you know. And so the idea is that these two ideas clearly are taught in Scripture, uh, God's total, sovereign, uh, undirected, uninfluenced, sovereign election. And yet man's responsibility to respond to that. Uh, both things are there. And, and uh, you know, we've spent time talking about this uh, in previous episodes and, and that kind of thing. Uh, in previous times, I should say. Um, and so I don't diminish either one. The scriptures teach both. And so how do you reconcile those two? I don't have any idea. Honestly, and it's it's one of the few mysteries in the scripture that are just really, I believe, beyond our finding out. I just think some of us may feel like we've got it figured out or we know, understand it to a point that I think probably is a little further than we actually do understand it. Um, and so when John here writes for the whole world, and I think of places where Paul talked about how uh, God was in Christ reconciling uh, the world to himself, not counting their, their trespasses against them, um, you know, I see passages like that, and if I'm going to allow other passages that speak of his sovereignty to be as clear as day, I, then I need to let these be clear as day as well. Let them say what they say. And so, I don't know. And so, I simply just let God's sovereign election be the warm blanket it's supposed to be, where I, uh, I'm chosen in him before the foundation of the world, and I'm his. Praise the Lord for that. 
I don't understand uh, how all that works, but I'm very thankful that he that that he's elected me. And like Moody, I, I do know it was Moody who said, you know, when, when, when asked about God's sovereign election, he said, well, I just ask God to save all the elect, and then I pray that he elects some more, you know? So anyway, enough about that. It's it's Again, it's uh, they've been arguing about it for centuries. I'm fairly certain we'll be arguing about it until we get to heaven and, you know, if we'll even understand it then. But, um, but I'm content to rest on God's character and nature and, and just, um, and just stop it. Hey, they're both there. But, um, but in, in John's writing, let me at least go as far as to say that God's, the offering that Christ made completely wiped out our sin as the, as the unleapable hurdle. He dealt with it. It's done. It's finished. It's paid in full. And so for those of us who wrestle with sin, who struggle with the temptations being so great that we just can't overcome them, we recognize, we need to recognize, that we approach these things now not from a position of striving for the sake of earning. We strive against sin because we don't want to displease the one who loved us the one who sent his only begotten son, that if anyone would believe in him, he'd not perish, but have everlasting life. But not because I'm afraid that if I don't, I'll go to hell. I'm afraid if I don't, that I'm, I'm just going to have to continue to carry the, the daily practical implications of my sin with me, like a consequence like David did or something like that. I'm thankful that my standing remains secure, but I don't even want to continue down a path that would cause me to have to carry consequences with me in life. I just want to be free of that, both for myself, just to not have to deal with that, to not have to live under the weight of that in, in that practical sense. I don't want to bring consequences upon myself. Um, you remember David, I mentioned him. Well, David's sin with Bathsheba ultimately had something to do with his own son Absalom, hunting after him and wanting to kill him and, and dethrone him and all those kinds of things, and David's inability to take any kind of a moral stand against that, uh, against his son Absalom. I mean, David kind of lost all moral authority because of his own sin. Well, I don't want to do anything like that. But that's not the main motivation. The main motivation is, is that I love the Lord. I can't believe what he did for me. I can't believe what he was willing to sacrifice for my, on my behalf. Uh, I can't believe, uh, and that's such a, a terrible expression to use in this. I, I'm just absolutely overwhelmed at the love that he has for me. When I, when I, know, uh, I know something about how awful I am. I can't even imagine being all-knowing and knowing everything about the evil that resides in here and still loving me. You know, that's beyond my comprehension. That's, that's something I can't figure out. That's something I, I, I can't even picture myself being uh, like that. Um, and when I think on those thoughts... Uh, you know, it, it causes me great rest to recognize that there's nothing I can do that will separate me from his love. Um, I'm his. And that that's a motivator for me. That's enough for me to want to continue to walk with him and to do my best, and, and, and you know, it, with his strength, by his grace, to not continually walk in any sin, to not let it abide in me, not let it rear its ugly head up and, and want to trip me up. I, and and I, I, I get Paul's struggle. You know, it's like I, 
the things I want to do, I find myself not doing. The things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. I, I just, I recognize the war within. And I think it does us well as Christians to not say that we don't have that. You know, the scriptures talk about how we do. It's very real. It's genuine. It's legit. But thank God it's paid for. And that just changes everything. It gives me a different, again, a different starting point from which to deal with it. No longer for victory, but from victory. So praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord. He is our advocate and he is our propitiation. He stands before the Father on our behalf. And now God sees us through him. But he's also our propitiation, which means it's satisfied now. There's nothing left to pay for my sin. It's done. It's a past thing. It's a finished act. I'm I'm right before him because of that act. He who knew no sin became sin with my sin and your sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's how he sees you and I right now, righteous like he is in him. It's just amazing. It's breathtaking. You know, that word amazing gets thrown around so you know, casually, oh, it's amazing. This food's amazing. That's amazing. No, no, this is amazing. This is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you for the saving power that you bring through the finished work of your son to take wretches like us, filthy, rebellious sinners, people that are often so sinful, that we don't even acknowledge that we're sinful. We've deceived ourselves and don't even see ourselves for what we really are. But you, Lord, like it says in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all else. Who can know it? What a great rhetorical question. Which one of us can really see it? We can't. But you, Lord, do see it. And yet somehow, with love untold, you still love us. When you say that you so loved the world that you sent, that you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him but not perish but have everlasting life, that love that you demonstrated through the giving of your Son for us, how undeserved, how absurdly gracious, how utterly staggering in every way. Father, let that knowledge Let the remembrance of those truths fuel us to walk with you, not out of guilt and legalism, but out of genuine, heartfelt, true love and gratitude. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thank you, Father. We love you, we praise you, we bless you. We ask you to continue to lead us deeper and deeper into truths like these, that they might truly transform us from the inside out. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.